Biblical history is repeating itself before our eyes on the world stage. Today, we're going to look at the ancient end times prophecies regarding Gaza, the Ammonites, Moabites and Egypt. And I want you to see if you can spot a pattern that's before our eyes today. Not only will we discover what is to come, but also most importantly, how God intends to deal with Israel's end times enemies. And it's actually quite unexpected. Now, as we begin, of course, there are many countries that surround Israel today. And in the Bible, there are many countries around Israel that are also described both in ancient times and as their rule in the end times before the second coming. So it's important for us to remember that not all people should be generalized as being the same. However, scripture does give us an overview of people groups and what the attributes of the enemies of Israel are and what they will be doing. Before we speak about Gaza, we have to speak about the Moabites and Ammonites. Now, these nations were on the east side of Israel in ancient times. And where they came from is from a little story known as Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by God for their evil abominations. And of course, Lot, which was a righteous man who God loved. He was called out of Sodom and Gomorrah just prior to its destruction. Lot's wife, however, turned around looking back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Lot and his two daughters then successfully escaped. And this is where we begin. Because now we have Lot and his two daughters and his daughters are looking at their father. They're looking at each other and they're asking themselves the question, how is their father going to have a line that is going to be continuing on? And they devise a plan that is quite horrific and terrible. And that is to ally with their father. We see the birth of two nations in Genesis 1935. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and laid with them, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, it's quite important to recognize what the root sin here was. Now, it's not the obvious, which was a great sin, but it was not trusting God. See, just as in the previous chapter of Genesis 18, Abraham did not trust God that he is going to bring forth a promised offspring through his wife, Sarah, who was barren. So Abraham instead went to be with Hagar, the servant and this disobedience was a grave sin on Abraham's part. Now, the same thing is happening here with Lot and his daughters. The daughters don't believe in God, that God can do something and bring about an offspring by his own means. So they take things into their own hands. Isn't it interesting that 
we have God's way and we have our way. God's way is a path of righteousness. It demands of us trust in God and to have faith in him. But our way, it always leads to sin. And this is what they did. Lying with their father was a grave sin. And not only did they lie with their father, but they raped him because it was not consensual. He was drunk and he did not even know of what was happening at all. This sin, if you think about it, was chosen out of a fear of lack on the side of the daughters, a fear. And that's really what we face is we face fears in this world. And the question is, is when we face a fear of how can God do this? This this seems like a terribly difficult situation. How is God going to make this happen? How? There's an option from this fear. You can decide to choose a path of unrighteousness and sin by your own means coming to a solution or you can trust in him. What will you trust? But Lot's daughters trusted wrongly in themselves and their sin was the very same thing that Sodom and Gomorrah was guilty of the people they were just fleeing from who got destroyed by God. They go and they're just free from that destruction. And suddenly they do the same thing by raping their father. And of course, that's why God pronounces that the the descendants that would come from these children would have the same judgment come upon them that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Zephaniah 2 9. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. And of course, one of the most telling markers of these people are that they want the land of Israel. We see, for example, on this ancient map, how they bordered with Israel, but they did not just border. They wanted the borders and beyond. We see in Zephaniah 2, 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. But this strife started long before even that. Because we read in Genesis 13, verse 8, that Abram and Lot, as they were dwelling together, their herdsmen were having strife with one another. And Abraham came to Lot saying, Hey, Lot, I want you to pick a side. You can go this way or you can go that way. And you can take that land and I'll go the other way because we're kinsmen and where we shouldn't be fighting, our people shouldn't be fighting. And Lot picked his own land. Genesis 13, 9 is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go right. If you take the right, I'll go left. Then Lot chose them all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated themselves the one from the other. So Lot picking the side he wanted, he picked the side that looked very good, but yet had a lot of evil people living there. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes it's wise to not just pick what looks good to our eyes, but to inquire of the Lord as to where we should go. Sodom and Gomorrah then eventually gets destroyed 
and Lot now and his offspring are in a position where they're looking at, well, Abraham's offspring, and they are in a place that seems more blessed and things seem to be going better. And there's a jealousy for Israel that starts developing. And because of this jealousy, they encroach upon Israel's borders and they want really that land always after Israel, always attacking Israel, always being a thorn in the side of Israel. But God says regarding the Moabites something extremely unexpectedly regarding the end times. He says that he's going to restore them. We see in Jeremiah 48, 46, where do you, O Moab? The people of Chemosh are undone for your son have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Yet I'll restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. God says something very similar, actually, to the Ammonites. We see in Jeremiah 49, verse five, behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts from all who are around you, and you shall be driven out every man straight before him with none to gather the fugitives. But afterwards, I'll restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Now, this is really peculiar because God is saying that he is going to bring judgment upon these people, the Ammonites, the Moabites. But then he says, I'm going to restore your fortunes in the end times. And it seems like, well, why is this? This makes no sense that God would bless them with a restoration after them being continuously evil against Israel. There are two reasons. Number one is righteous Lot. Lot, as you recall, got saved him and his small family from all of the destruction that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's line has a special place in God's heart. But number two, also, God desires to save even wicked Gentiles and God desires to save even Israel's enemies. And this is mind blowing to many of us. We we look at people who are murderers, people who are even terrorists, you could argue, people who do not deserve any grace or any mercy. But look at what God declares regarding Israel's enemies and how he intends to deal with them in the latter days, according to biblical prophecy. Now, let me remind you, this is in our future. This is what God will do. Let's see. Zephaniah 2 verse 11. The Lord will be terrible unto them, Moab and Ammon, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. And men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. So there's like this crazy twist here because God is saying, I'm going to put judgment on them. I am going to give them what they deserve. But then he says, I'm going to do a wonder. I'm going to turn their hearts to me and they will worship me. Even all the isles of the heathen. I mean, this is in line with 
the message of the cross where Yeshua came to die for all of the sins of not only Israel. He said he came through the Jew first, but not only for the Jew, for the Greek, for the Gentile, for the pagans. And that is going to continue in the latter days, whereas even the enemies of God, those who would repent, those who would turn away from their wickedness, he would even offer them that grace. We see even of Gaza, this judgment of Zephaniah 2 verse 4. Listen to what he says. For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod in the noonday and Akron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy you that there shall be no inhabitant and the sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and folds for flocks and the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. But now look at what God says regarding hope for Gaza. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth and his abominations from between his teeth. But he that remains, even he shall be for our God and he shall be as a governor and Judah and Akron as a Jebusite. If you think about any nation right now on the news that can be described as having blood in its mouth, you can think about Hamas, the government of Gaza. And here, speaking of Gaza, it is described that God will one day take away the blood out of its mouth. And then he says he that remains will be for our God. In other words, as we will soon read, there is going to be a great battle in the end times between Israel and surrounding nations. And it will culminate with the second coming of Yeshua. But with that, Israel's enemies will be destroyed. And there will be a remaining survivorship of those who are in the countries who came against Israel. And this is who is being talked about now. He that remains, even he, it says, will be for our God, which is a picture of the ability for Yeshua by his grace and mercy to turn even their hearts towards him. And also it's an indication that well, not all governments represent all people in that nation. And that, of course, while there will be those who are militantly against Israel, there will also be those who are found in that country, but who aren't as against Israel, those that will not engage in the battle. And they will also be of those who remain. It is also described that they will be as Jebusites. Now we see a Jebusite described in 2 Samuel 24, verse 18 through 23, where it speaks of Aronua. While maintaining his own identity, he is also respecting and living in honor and in peace with Israel and the king of Israel. Two things about prophecy. Number one, prophecy, when it is given to a prophet, that prophet is going to speak and give the information using landmarks and things that he knows to best describe 
what he is trying to say by the word of the Lord. Because remember, prophetic revelation is given by a prophet, but that prophet is still often going to be using things that he knows, names of places and so on to describe the prophecy. And so therefore, it is natural for the prophet of Zephaniah, for example, to use words and names of places and peoples that were in his day. That was how he could describe the people living there or here. Number two, it's important for us to also know that prophecy often has both a minor and a major fulfillment. One example of this is when Yeshua stands at the Feast of Tabernacles and he announces that the living waters have arrived, that whoever drinks of him will be satisfied and from his belly will also flow a river of living water. But we know that that's not the full fulfillment of the Feast of Sukkot, but that there is a living water of Sukkot that is also going to be flowing from Jerusalem that is prophesied to occur as all nations come to King Yeshua when he is enthroned. And so it's important to not toss aside a prophecy that is only partially fulfilled as being fulfilled when it's very likely that it's not completely fulfilled and the major instance of that prophecy has not been completely fulfilled. And this should be applied when we think about the prophecies such as the one we read just now regarding Gaza. In 332 BC, it's argued that this prophecy was fulfilled when Alexander the Great besieged Gaza and overthrew the Philistines. But where did the modern name of Palestine come from then? In the second century AD, the Romans crushed the revolt of Shimon Bar Kokhba. Jerusalem was conquered and the area of Judea renamed Palestina after the historical arch enemy of Israel, the Philistines. So while there may have been a fulfillment of the prophecy in the past, there remains a major prophetic significance since much of the Palestinian ideology today mirrors that of the ancient Philistines, an ideology of hatred for Israel. Modern Gaza is attacking the same borders that the ancient people of Gaza attacked. All this to say, that just as God had a plan of redemption for the ancient inhabitants of Gaza, the Philistines that remained. So it is that I want to submit God has a plan for the modern inhabitants of Gaza, the Palestinians, for those that will remain, those who do not lift a sword against God himself, who do not make themselves out to be his enemies. We should pray for those caught in the middle of this war for the gospel to go forth and reach them. We must understand that God's heart remains for not only Israel, but also for those of the world, Gentiles, even pagans who do not currently know him. Yeshua has come to save the world and deliver them from sin. Now let's also read about Egypt and Assyria In Isaiah 19, verse 19. We read in that day, 
there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors. He will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice, with offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria will come to Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. We have not seen that highway from Egypt to Assyria and Assyria coming with Egypt just together, worshiping God nationwide, these nations coming together with a savior coming for them. That savior is Yeshua, is Jesus. And I want to submit to you that it is speaking about the second coming where he is going to be coming for them. And I want to read to you of this in Zechariah 2 verse 10, where this is also described from this other perspective. He says, sing and rejoice, daughter of Zion, for behold, I will come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It is also described that many nations are going to be coming to Yeshua in a mass revival event, really. And it is when King Yeshua comes back to rule from Zion. This return is described in more detail in Zechariah 14, verse four. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Verse 16, and everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Again, we hear this language described of those who come against Jerusalem in the end of the age, the great battle against Jerusalem, whereas at the end, at the culmination thereof, it talks about Yeshua coming and he being set up as king will have all nations come to celebrate the biblical feast days. Now, there is a statement that has gone around for quite a while now, and it is that the true regathering of Israel means that there must be peace in Jerusalem. And therefore, any kind of a gathering of Jewish people that's happening in Israel today, people returning to the land is false because there isn't true peace, obviously, in the Middle East right now. But the scriptures we just read demonstrates that true peace will only ever be able to come when Yeshua returns and rules. He will dwell in Jerusalem and on that day there will be peace. But there will be a regathering leading up to that that will take place, whereas Israel will dwell in the land, but there won't be peace because, of course, it is written in the end days that 
Nations will rise against Jerusalem. That means that there is no peace. That means that there is a people of Israel living in the end days in Jerusalem where this great war will take place, where there will not be peace. Therefore, it demonstrates that there will be a regathering prior to that great end times war. That regathering has started and it is taking place as we speak, where thousands of Jewish people are moving to Israel every year. And so what do we now see by all of this? We see a beautiful picture of salvation that God is working out, even for those whom we may find it hard to imagine God wanting to save them. God wanting to save the people who are coming against Israel in the end times. God says on the one hand, he's going to bring judgment upon those nations, that he is going to destroy many of those who are coming against Israel. Absolutely. But on the other hand, he says those who are left, those who are surviving in those nations, those who will receive mercy. And ultimately, I want to submit to you that God This is not supposed to shock us because this is what he has done for all of us. This is what he has done for me and what he has done for you. While we were enemies of God, we were as those who would one day come against Israel and who are coming against Israel today with the rising anti-Semitism we see all around us. We were all as that having the spirit of the world inside of us. But he has delivered us, giving us this Holy Spirit, opening our eyes we see God renewing them just as he renewed us. But also, I want to remind you of the prayers of Abraham, because when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for all of her wickedness, we see that Abraham came to the Lord and he asked, he said, Lord, suppose that there are 10 people found there. And God said, for the sake of 10 people, I will not destroy. There is hope before us all. But Before we get to the end, there is also a lot of things that are going to happen. There are going to be terrible atrocities, uh, times of persecution, times of tribulation, times of hurt. So I want to take a moment to pray for all who are going to be a part of any of that persecution or hurt or trial in the latter days. And so Father, I pray for all living today even in the midst of this war going on in Israel right now, in Gaza, in the Middle East. Father, I pray, Lord, that you for those innocent ones, you would have your hand of protection over them. Father, I pray that you have mercy. And Father, I pray, Lord, even for the enemies of Israel, that you would turn their hearts to you. You would open their eyes to the atrocities that they have committed and are committing. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would let them see Yeshua for who he is. Father, I also pray, Lord, for the Israeli government, that you would open up their eyes, Lord, to righteousness, that you would let them repent from unjust governance. But Father, I pray, Lord, that all of Israel, all the people of Israel would have their eyes opened to the Messiah. They would see him for who he is as the times of the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in. Father, I ask, Lord, in the times of trial of the end, that you would preserve your remnant, that you would protect them, that you would have mercy on them. And Lord, I pray, Father, 
for your Holy Spirit to give all of us discernment for the end of days so that we would discern by your word, by your scriptures and not by what seems right to us and by our own understandings. For the world is going to have a loud voice of what it thinks. But Father, help us to hear your voice and by our knowledge of the scripture and by the Holy Spirit to know what you are saying and where you are calling us to. We pray all this in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. We talked about in this video about how God is going to save many of even Israel's enemies. Check out this video where I talk about how God plans on saving the Jewish people, according to biblical prophecy.